that, hey, as was mentioned, go ahead and get your Bibles on your phone or in your uh, leather-bound, paperback, whatever it is. Uh, Matthew 19, we're going to be there in just a few minutes. Uh, we normally, at this point, I'll just say hello to the other Western North Carolina campuses, but in particular, I uh, want to say hello to our online audience. Uh, I guess because of the ice storm, I was told there's like a 400% increase in online attendance. So uh, you grab your Bibles uh, as well. Uh, that's where we're going to be. We are in a series, as the video said, called uh, Reset, uh, Reset the Family, all right, or Reset the Table. And the idea is the people that are closest to us, the ones we love the most, the ones that in a lot of cases are family, uh, family joys are the biggest joys. Uh, family victories are the biggest victories, but family pain is uh, the hardest pain. Uh, family injury, it is the hardest to get over. Uh, it tends to be a super persistent, very, very stubborn, which in some cases was based on the song choice today as well, because uh, as, as Caleb mentioned earlier, mountains in the Bible, we talk about what Jesus actually told us and said, hey, you look at that mountain and you pray a prayer in faith, mountain go into the sea, you pray that in faith, it will go into the sea. The idea is not that the mountain will, but mountains are pictures of something that have been there a long time something that has been immovable, something that is stubbornly persistent. It's been there, and I've given up hope that it's going to change in any way, shape, or form. And so what we're doing is we're trying to reset that and say, you know what? God does change. Uh, God does heal. God wants to do a miracle in your family, and in many cases, he wants to begin that in your life uh, today. And so uh, there's not a family in here that is not sinful and has had pain. And so what we're trying to figure out is how do we reset some things? And uh, some, some weeks are going to be closer uh, to your heart than other weeks. Last week was a good one for all of us, just about how do we show grace to those that have injured us. There'll be other weeks when we look at a parenting or prodigal or you know, uh, communication or boundaries with in-laws or whatever. Uh, today is one that at first glance, you're like, that doesn't have anything to do with me. Uh, and I would say it does. And it's about resetting with marriage. It's for the single. It's for the married. It's for the divorce. It's for the single again. Uh, if you're single, you need to have a crystal clear vision of how awesome and how difficult marriage is, all right? You need to understand, you know, what, what is the, what is the, it's not the, what the romance novel says, it's not what the talk show host said, it's what does the Bible say about how the glory of marriage, but also how difficult it is, so you don't put it on a pedestal that if I ever find Mrs. Wright, my life is going to be awesome and happy, and if I never do, my life will be worthless, don't, don't think like that, so it's, that's for you. All right. Secondly, it is also for those that are engaged, by the way. If you're engaged and uh, you need to do not pass go, do not collect $200, you go to the website and you get signed up for the Before I Say I Do class. Just go to builtmorechurch.com slash I do. And it's thing starts soon. All right. It starts, I think it starts this week or next week. Get signed up for that. Don't spend more time planning the actual wedding and walking down an aisle than you do preparing for the 40 or 50 years after that, all right? So let's get prepared on the front end. It's also for those of us who have the privilege of being married. If you're privileged enough to be uh, married, there's obviously there's some habits, there's some hangups, there's some views that are harming your marriage, and we want to reaffirm the strong things, but we want to correct the wrong things. And then lastly, it is for you if you are divorced. And I say, uh, I say that understanding the text that we're going to be in. Uh, divorce uh, has affected many people uh, in the room today. It's affected you in a number of different ways. Maybe you have gone through a divorce and it was the most painful thing you've ever been through. Uh, some of you are right now in the midst of going through a divorce and you're like, man, I can't believe I showed up at not only ice day, but I showed up on divorce day. Really? That's uh, and. Um, 
I want God to speak some grace into your life uh, today as well. Some of you watched your parents go through uh, divorce and it shaped your view on marriage, what it is, what it could be, what it is not. And I will say on the front end, I don't want to come to you uh, judgmentally on this. I know for you, this was one of the most painful times in your life. Something that if you said, you know, I wish I'd have done this or I could have avoided it, uh, you would have. Uh, That needs to be said because some Christians sound like that divorce is the unpardonable sin. It's almost like, uh, you know what, if you're going to go around the rest of your life with a big uh, D on your shirt, and that's not true. It's not the unpardonable sin. It's not the end of your Christian ministry, your Christian testimony. You know, the old saying is, you know, if if you're not dead, God's not done with you. That would apply here for sure. If you're here and you're breathing, uh, that is not the end, all right? Uh, So what we want to figure out is, all right, uh, what do I need to do now? Uh, What do I, what what is broken that needs to be fixed? Because really every family here is brokenness. We just have that in common. It just fleshes itself out in different ways. So, With that commentary on the front end, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to take a passage. It will not answer all the questions that you have. I'll tell you on the front end. I've tried to anticipate some of the ones you have, and yet at the same time, focusing on the main thing that the text actually says. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the verse 3. We're going to talk about the context that sets up all that Jesus actually says. Um, There'll be some questions we answer at the end, but then there'll probably be some more that you have, and obviously we can answer those either during the week or email or whatever. But here's verse 3 of chapter 19, and then some, some background to help us with it. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Now, if you look at the first two verses, Jesus at this point was very popular. Lots of people were following him. The religious leaders were getting very, very nervous. They're like, man, how do we thin the herd a little bit? There's way too many people following Jesus. So a couple times you'll see in the scriptures they'll come up and this word is used. They came up to test him. They ask it, they'll ask him questions, not because they want an, an honest answer, but because they're going to try to set him up to fail. And they ask him to they do the same thing about money. They do the same thing in other areas. And this one, they're going to say, okay, we're going to ask you about divorce. It's emotional enough anyway, but particularly you're going to hear a little bit of the context of what was going on in his day. But they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any, any reason. So let me give you the background. Divorce like now, but back then divorce was rampant. People were getting divorced all the time. Everybody thinks this is a modern uh, phenomenon. It's not a modern phenomenon at all. Uh, back then, the first century debate, the whole thing was, you know what, the, the question they're asking is, is God ever okay with divorce? And if so, when is he okay with divorce? Now, the reason they're like, well, that's kind of an odd question to ask. Back then, there was basically two schools of thought that were based on the same passage of Scripture. The Scripture, don't turn to it, but in your fifth book of your Bible, the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 24, there's a phrase that is mentioned that is ambiguous. It's ambiguous in the English, and it's ambiguous in the original language as well. And basically what the verse says is this, it's, and they're going to refer to it in a second. It says, if a man takes a wife and marries her, if he finds some, and this is the phrase that's ambiguous, if they find some indecency in her, and then it talks about writer's certificate of divorce. Now, the word indecent or indecent in her, that's the one that all the questions were about. 
there's two schools of thought. One school was headed by one rabbi, call him the conservative rabbi. The conservative rabbi basically held that, you know what, uh, if uh, the only reason, the only reason you have that you can divorce your spouse is marital unfaithfulness. If she, is an, if she commits adultery, physically sleeps with somebody who is not her husband, if that takes place, then you can actually, uh, you can divorce your wife. That guy's name was Shammai, and as he did that, this, this whole school of thought followed him. All right, the second guy, his name is Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, he was actually the majority view. Let's just call him, he's kind of our left-wing progressive. He went to Cal Berkeley. That's how he kind of got his theology. And the way his theology worked was, and this is in extra-biblical writings as well, his theology was basically this. Uh, Indecency in her means anything at all. If she does anything at all, then you can divorce her. And anything at all means anything at all. There's some writings of his that says if she burns your toast, you can divorce her. And then all that, basically anything she does, if she gains weight, if she changes her hair, if she moves the furniture, if she burns the toast, whatever it is, then you can divorce her. Sadly, that was actually the majority view in that time. And so the religious people come up to Jesus and say, okay, here's the question. Where do you stand on divorce? Do you stand on the conservative side uh, or do you stand on the liberal side? And they knew that that was not just tense, but they actually knew John the Baptist. If you remember that story, he, he talked about divorce and remarriage and a lax view of that, and they ended up killing him. And so probably they're thinking, all right, if that's what they're going to do with John the Baptist talking about remarriage and divorce, then maybe some of these people will turn against Jesus and we can get him killed as well. All right, that's context. Verse 4. He answered, have you not read, which is really great because he does this a couple of times in this gospels where they ask him something and he kind of digs on them a little bit because these were the religious experts. They knew all of the Old Testament, had read it numerous times and memorized large chunks of it. And they're like, dude, have you not even read it? Have you not even read like the primary source? And he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, and this is where he talks about the first wedding, the first marriage, the one that God brought together, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, some of the translations say, and the two shall become one flesh. And then verse six, so they are no longer two, but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you're asking the wrong question. The question that you should be asking is, what is God's design for marriage? What is God's dream for marriage? What is this template? What is he? You're asking, how do you get out of it? What you should be asking is, how do you stay in it? How do you deal with the issues when they come up? And so as he does this, his answer is he takes them back to the beginning and a quick flyby of the Genesis narrative. In the Genesis narrative, God sees it's not good for man to be alone. It's like, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's not good for man to be alone. And so he actually takes a bone out of Adam and he fashions, he makes Adam, but he fashions, different word, fashions, intricately weaves, he makes Eve. Adam wakes up and it's like, yeah, that's awesome. And guys, some of you are like, I'm not romantic or I'm not a poet or I'm not a songwriter. The first words out of the mouth of the first man, it was a love song. It was a poem. 
It was like romantic saying, and it doesn't sound that. It's like, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. You're like, man, that doesn't sound real romantic at all. And it doesn't sound it, but that's what, it was a love song. It was a love song, and then God joined in on the love song, and that's when he says, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, right? So a couple things real quick before we jump into the application. It's this, listen, God's the one that creates marriage. God's the one that creates marriage, okay? It's not something that we got dreamed up in culture 50,000 years ago to take care of litigation. It's not, it's not that. God dreamed it up. He put it in the DNA of people all around the world. That's why you see weddings and marriage all around the world. And this is his template, all right? Think about it this way. This is not like a one-off. I'm going to put it for Genesis 1 and 2. This is what he's using now in Matthew 19, and this is the template for the whole Bible, Think of it this way, leave your father and mother. He's telling that to Adam. Adam didn't have a father. He didn't have a father to leave. He's saying, this is the template. Ladies, Eve didn't have no choice, okay? Eve wasn't looking around at the office going, man, that's Mr. Right. Boom, that's Mr. Awesome. None of that happened. She had no choice at all. So what he's saying is, this is the paradigm. This is the template. This is what marriage actually is to look like. And so what we want to do is circle around a few ideas uh, and land the plane on a couple and here's, here's the first one. This is, this is really throughout the Bible. Ephesians 5 really breaks this out. And what I want you to do is I want you to remember on the front end, because I understand we have not just single people, not just divorced people. We have marriages in all different states right now. All right, we have some of you, and you are just seeking some counsel. It's like our marriage is okay. We just, it's a little more, you know, woe than it is wow right now. But we, we, we're doing okay. We just need some guidance. All right, others of you are like, man, if we don't get something now, we're not making it till Tuesday. And I understand all that. So understand this, remember, you've got to remember the whole thing about marriage, think covenant, not contract. You have to think of the marriage as a covenantal relationship, not a contractual relationship. The, all the wording in here, I mean, there's two, two visions in here. One guy, one rabbi's like, whatever, she burns the toast, you're out of here. That's a contract. The other guy's thinking of a covenant. It's like under the most extreme circumstances is the only reason you ought to even think about it. So what's, what's a contract? I mean, a contract, nothing wrong with a contract. If you're over 16 in this room, you live in a contract world. You do. All right, if you have cable TV, which is not a great idea to begin with, but if you have cable TV, then guess what? You know, you have a contract with them. You pay them money to put channels into your home. If you uh, rent a house, you've got a lease payment you got to make. If you are trying to buy a house, you've got a mortgage payment. And it's the idea that you do your job, I'll do my job. You provide me goods and services, I will then provide you with something in return. That's a contract. Two parties come together for mutual benefit, and when the contract gets broken, then I'm just, I am out of here, okay? Please, marriage is not contractual. Marriage is covenantal. A covenant in the Bible is where two people basically understand that the relationship is greater than the immediate individual needs of the two people. I'll give you an example. Think about your kids. If you're a parent and you have kids, especially small ones, you understand innately that that is a covenantal relationship. For example, if little eight-year-old Johnny is not meeting your needs, if eight-year-old Johnny is not behaving like you thought, if little eight-year-old Johnny is not behaving when the guests come over, you do not have the temptation. I don't think you shouldn't. I mean, even we, I mean, everybody, even our culture would look down on you. It's like, you know what? Eight-year-old Johnny is not performing up to my expectations. I am out of here. Eight-year-old Johnny is out of here. 
No, everybody was like, no, you, what are you doing? That's a covenant relationship with your kids. You can't do that. It's not always going to be easy in understanding the same way. Uh, we talk like that in our marriages. We talk contractually. We do. It sounds like this. It sounds like uh, counsel from grandma that says, you know what? Marriage is a 50-50 deal. You do your 50% and I'll do my 50% and then we'll be okay. That is not right. That's contractual 50-50. It sounds like this. It's like, well, you know what? I'm not happy. I'm not happy in our marriage anymore. Loved ones, I'm not trying to be a jack today. I'm just saying that is a contract talk. I'm not happy, and you don't make me happy anymore. That is a contract. Like, I, I said I would marry you until you didn't make me happy anymore. How about this? Uh, I mean, I've heard this, I've heard this uh, double digits in the last few years. And it was like, he changed. He changed on me. He's not the man that I married. I don't want to. Of course he changed. Of course she changed. She changes. He changes. Lori Frank's been married to like eight different Bruce Franks in 29 years, okay? There's been like eight of me. I mean, the idea is, of course they're going to change. Of course they're going to change. Hopefully those changes are ones you're like, that's awesome. I love that. But of course they change. And you add into that all the stuff about the wounds that you married into and all the expectations and all the stuff you don't even know about him and know about her. And then that's what he says. He says, you hold fast to your wife. You cleave. The idea is it's going to be hard to hold on. And the idea of cleaving, we would use the idea of kind of super glue together. That's what the word means. And that's why he says, what God has joined together, do not let man separate. Because God's involved in this covenant. God's involved in it. That's what you got to understand. God's God's not involved as much in contracts. He's involved in covenants that we make with another person. I mean, for example, just think about the vows that if you got the privilege of being married and uh, you, uh, uh, you got married at a church or anybody did, you know, basic vows. Here's base. Can you imagine going to a wedding and hearing vows like uh, something like this? The vows are like, you know what? I promise to love, cherish, and honor you as long as you uh, keep the yard mowed and your beard trimmed and a good job. That goes out the window. I am out of here, out of here, hit the road, Jack. Do not come back. Amen, amen, amen. And that's what you would say. If somebody else was like, uh, hey, you know what? I'll do that as long as your hair stays in place and as long as it doesn't get gray and as long as you don't, you would take your gift off the gift table, grab it and run out as fast as you can. You're like, that marriage didn't last in three months. They're going to pawn the gift that I gave them and they're going to go pawn it in four months. So you're like, that marriage is not going to last. And loved ones, what you've got to understand is the vows, next time you're at a wedding, think about the way the vows uh, are done. Uh, they start off, and I've done a bunch of weddings, and here's the way I do them. Um, the vows are basically questions that you ask them on the front end. And they're not looking at each other. I don't have the, I don't have the bride and groom look at each other on the front end, all right? They're looking at me, uh, but I'm just kind of the proxy. They're, they're actually standing before God and family and friends, and you got to understand, there is a horizontal aspect to a wedding and there's a vertical aspect to the wedding, okay? There's a horizontal aspect to a covenant. There's a vertical aspect to a covenant. And when you do your vows and you do the questions and so forth, when you ask questions like, will you have this woman to be your lawful and wedded wife? And will you promise to love her and cherish her? Da, da, da. And they say, I do. They're saying, I do in front of all these people, including God. And when the husband does the same thing, and then you get to the part where you turn them toward each other, and then they say these vows back to each other. And it's like they go from I will and I do to I take you to be my lawful and wedded husband. 
to have and to hold to this day forward for better or worse or richer or poor in sickness and in health till death do us part. That is a horizontal, I'm making a covenant with you. And that's also, yes, I do. I'm making a vertical covenant with God right while I'm here. Now, uh, I understand, just, I mean, think about, think, think about a, think about a house, think about an A-frame house. This is the way, this is the way biblical, this is the way the Bible treats marriages. You got husband, you got wife, and they are holding, they're, they're leaning on each other and they are together and that's horizontal. But on the foundation, you've got God, you've got God right there who is holding both of them up. That is why you got to see it as a covenant. You're like, well, man, I would, I would think it's a, I would see this covenant, but you know, I think I just missed the right one. I mean, preacher, I don't really want to tell my spouse because we hadn't gotten divorced yet, but I think I missed, a, I think my right one was the girl that I missed. And I saw on Facebook where she's divorced now, but I think the one that I missed was my high school sweetheart. So I'm planning on kind of going back to Waco or I'm planning on going back to New Jersey or wherever it is because I'm going to meet up with him in a football game. Okay. I'm glad you said that and thought that. Um, here's, uh, here's what you got to think. You got to reject, and I don't know how to say this, the one, the one. I missed the one. I missed the one. I missed it. My other half, my soulmate. I missed my soulmate out there. I'm married here, but that's, he's not my soulmate at all. You've got to reject. Now, I'm going to get to that. You're like, did God lead me to my husband or not? Oh, hold on a second. What he says here in the text is the two become one flesh. That, what that is is that's the process. That's the process of two people. Very different, different backgrounds, different families, different heritages, different, all this stuff. They're coming together in what you say your vows is we're making the conviction and we're saying that we're better together than we are apart. That God has brought two people with definitely different stuff and you're bringing this together as one. And what you got to say that is the urban legend that there is a mythical creature out there somewhere, probably sitting next to Sasquatch or a unicorn, who was made to, quote, complete you, okay? You're missing half, all right? Let's just, you're like, it's in the Bible somewhere. It's not in the Bible. You know where you get that? I mean, way before Renee Zellweger looked at Tom Cruise, it's like, you complete me. Ugh! I mean, that's just uh, <laughs> way before that, way before Renee Zellweger. It actually comes from Greek mythology. Greek mythology, there's a guy named Plato, and he's, he wrote about... He talked about in one of his writings, he said, okay, humans are androgynous. You know, they got, they got four arms, they got four legs, they got two faces. This is, and so he says, what, what, what the gods did, I think it was Zeus, what, gods, what the gods did is they, they would cut, they're like getting jealous of the humans. They're like, they're going to get too many of us. We're going to cut them in half, but we don't want to lose their worship. So instead of killing them, that's what they did. They cut them in half. They just cut them in half. And so the whole idea was, Plato's like, okay, for the rest of your life, because you're cut in half, you spend your life searching for your, quote, missing other half. And until you find your missing half, you are not a complete person. That is not what the Bible says. That's what the one Pulitzer Prize guy called it, the apocalyptic romance. The apocalyptic romance that if I just meet Mrs. Wright... We're going to have such awesome chemistry. We will see each other. We will know, and it is going to be like marital bliss all the time. I don't, again, I've said this a hundred times, but you've got to understand this. You are not marrying a perfect person. You are marrying a sinner. You're marrying a broken, broken, rebellious, stubborn sinner. 
If you think you married a perfect person, look at their hands, and if they're not nail scars in them, you are marrying a sinner. And if it costs Jesus his life, it's probably going to cost you a few headaches. Do you understand me? If it costs you some grief and it costs Jesus dying on the cross, it's probably going to inconvenience and bug you. And so uh, here's the idea. Uh, people are like, you know what? My marriage is so hard. It shouldn't be this hard. And First of all, that in and of itself is stupid. I mean, what, really? It shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't be this hard. It should, it should be easy. If we're like soulmates, it should be easy. This is just not true. Where does that work in any other area of life? Watching the playoffs this afternoon on the NFL, when you think when Tom Brady like drops a dime from 30 yards right in the breadbasket, do you think he's like, oh, that's easy. I fell out of the crib doing that. No, he like worked for years perfecting the craft to be able to drop that ball right in that place at a particular time under pressure. So in the same way, your marriage is never, nowhere is it saying it is going to be easy. It is the hardest thing you will ever do. And you're like, well, I, don't, I don't think it should be like that. Here's, let me give you, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. Let me just tell you those of you that are engaged, here's what's going to happen. Okay, okay. And marriage is awesome, but marriage is awesome, but it's not heaven on earth. Okay, so here's, here's what will happen is, and this is some of you are going to amen and don't amen too loudly, or you're going to get clocked uh, by your spouse next to you. So forewarning, but... Uh, I mean, when you're dating, it's like, oh, we're so different. It's so awesome. I love the way she has that little giggly laugh. And I love, I love the way he's so strong and never shares his feelings and is introverted. And I like the way that she likes to go to the play. And I love the way he likes to get up at 4 o'clock and go hunt deer. I mean, I love that. I love that stuff. And then like two years into marriage, you're like, what? You're killing Bambi? What in the world are you thinking? Are you a killer? What is, what is that? I'm not checking my man card at no Mary Poppins. And that laugh of yours, it's stupid. That's what it is. It's just dumb. I don't like it anymore. All right? That's what happens. You think it, some of you are laughing and some of you are like, mm-hmm, that is exactly, is exactly right. So let me say it as clearly as I can. Because we are broken people, you, in one sense you can say you never I would just put it the negative. You always marry the wrong person because the quote right person out there does not exist. Doesn't exist out there. Every single potential person out there is a broken sinner. And let me give you, I went to Texas Tech, so my math is not really strong. So let me just say, let me just say, even this math works, okay? One broken sinner plus one broken sinner equals conflict. Equals conflict. Or do you go to the negative, one broken sinner plus one broken sinner does not equal marital bliss. It does not. And so he says, that's why he's putting, it's like you've got to remember, you've got to remember, you've got to remember, it is, a, it is a covenant. So let me uh, give you a couple of uh, uh, thoughts uh, to put on there. Uh, here's what God doesn't look down on, on Adam and say, he doesn't look down at Adam and say, Man, he looks so sad. He needs a lift. He needs another human being that will quench the thirst in his soul. And so I will make another human to quench the thirst in his soul. Eve, you're up. Pressure's on. You better deliver. That's not what he does. That's not what he does at all. A spouse is not a good substitute for God. A spouse. And so don't look at yourself saying, you know what? I'm single. I'm incomplete. That's not in the Bible. That's not. I cringe. I cringe. People nowadays, they want to write their own vows. And, and if, if I ever do your wedding just on the front end, I kind of let you write the vows, but I change them up 
considerably because some of your vows are so dumb. They're just dumb. They're, du- they're dumb. So, some of them are good, but some of them are dumb. I've had guys write down. I've actually, I wrote one of them down. I'm not going to tell you who it was that said it, but I'm just saying, here's what, here's what he wrote down. I promise, some guys, I promise to make you happy. I promise to make you, that got, that got deleted, okay? I'm like, I'm not saying that because you can't keep that promise, bro. You are not God and you cannot keep that promise. You're like, I will make you happy. You cannot make her happy. Marriage is not meant to make you happy. Happiness is a result of a healthy marriage and there's great joy and happiness and conflict and forgiveness and experiences and memories and it's awesome, but it's not your job to go, okay, you can't be happy unless I'm in your life. That's not what the Bible teaches. And uh, to say it is, is you can make a great husband. You are a terrible idol, terrible idol. That's why... The Bible doesn't say we're lonely people who need soulmates. It says we are sinners who need a savior. You know, and just, I don't mean to beat this dead horse, but all marriage is going to really do is expose stuff. Hope you know this. I know some of you are dating or maybe only been married a year and you hadn't had a fight yet. Two years and you hadn't had a fight. If you hadn't had a fight in 10 years, it's not because you're like perfect. It's because you live parallel lives. You get two people that are actually doing life together, there's going to be some churning of the waters, all right? There's going to be some loud disagreements. But the idea is this. When you sit there and you think about, all right, the fact that, all right, I've married this person. This is the person for me. You've got to understand marriage is just going to put the pressure on that. In some ways, you can say there's no married people problems as much as they're individual problems that marriage simply exposes. That is why marriage is so humbling. It's humbling. Honestly, before I got married, I thought I was a pretty good guy. <laughs> before I got married, I thought I was a pretty good guy. And I honestly, and then I realized, I was like, I am a stubborn, selfish, partially angry, internalize everything kind of person. You're like, well, don't be hard on you. I'm just saying that's what it is. But when I was in my own little bubble, my own little single thing, my own little going to work and going to school and going to this and going to that, I was a great guy. But then I realized, you know what? I'm kind of a jack wagon at times because there's some stuff that marriage exposed. It's not that marriage made them. It's marriage pressured it enough to actually bring it out. Think about, think about some bridge that has a bunch of hairline cracks in it, a bunch of flaws, but nobody sees the flaws because they're so small and they're, so, they're kind of innocuous. And then all of a sudden you take a big truck and you drive it over that bridge and all of a sudden the pressure of the truck starts to expose all the fractures in the bridge. The fractures were already there, but the pressure of the truck is exposing what was there. Listen to me. The truck of marriage will expose all the junk that is in your life. All the pressure will come out, and you're like, man, I didn't see that in her. I didn't see that in him. That's true. That's true. You didn't. That's why it's a covenant. I will say clearly, though, man, my, my wife makes me a better person. My wife makes me a more godly man. She calls out the best in me. She calls out my identity to be in Christ, not in other stuff and not in accomplishments. But again, it also calls out the worst in me because I can be stubborn and stringent and legalistic and all that other stuff that nobody would see unless I was in a marriage relationship. And some of you are like, well, how do I know? How do I know if I met the right one? Or how do I know if I married the right one? Or how do I, how do I know that? You're like, oh. the reason that you know, if you're married, the reason that you know you are married to the one God wanted you to be married to is because she's got a ring on it. That's the reason. Like, I'm not sure I married the right. When you said, I do, and you made a covenant, that became God's will for you to be married to that person. 
You're like, well, I don't know about that. Chapter and verse me. The reason that you are married, the reason that it is a covenant, because now, listen, the marriage is two broken people coming together to follow God's call on their life. And it's painful and it's glorious all at the same time. Here's one, what one author said. The reason that marriage is so painful and yet so wonderful is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which in itself is painful and wonderful all at the same time. The gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is the only kind of relationship that will really change us. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports us, it affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is both radical in its truth as well as radical in its unconditional commitment to us. And so that's why he says, listen, don't be searching around for that unicorn by the Sasquatch at the end of the pot of the gold at the rainbow, okay? Look at the person that God has already put you in a covenant relationship with and reaffirm, number one, we are in covenant together and you are the one. You're the one. You're the one. You are the one. And just make a, make a resolution today. Resolve. Here's this last one. That's, okay. Here, look at verse 7, 8, 9. And we're going to get sticky for about seven minutes. It's not going to answer all the questions, but we, gotta, we need to deal with the text. Now, I'll tell you on the front end, there's people that I respect that look differently at different texts. Uh, this text is one of those. But let's just take it for the plain. My deal on, on Scripture is, if in doubt, take the clear meaning. If you can't figure it out and you do all your word studies, you still can't, take the clear meaning. I think you'll see what I mean. They said to him, because he, he just talked about it, he just took them back. It's like, it's a covenant, it's a covenant, it's a covenant. It's like, why then? Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, listen to me. If you look back in that Deuteronomy passage, it's not as much of a command to divorce your wife, okay? There's allowances and there's commands. Commands are, this is what God's heart is. That's what, that's what verse 4 and 5 were, okay? That's a command, all right? An allowance is because of the stubbornness of your heart, because of the sin, because of the brokenness, I'm going to allow something to happen in order to try to get to your heart, and the truth be, truth be known, everybody in this room, we got some parts of our heart that are stubborn, that are resistant to change. Everybody in here whose marriage is just here, you've got something that you need to own. It might be 10%. It might be 90%. But of the 10%, what you want to be able to do is say, all right, this is my 10%. I'm going to confess it. And then God's going to allow it to clean it. And then he's going to allow it to change it. We'll get to that in a second. But they said to him, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Verse 8. He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart. It's like your heart has become like this. You don't think, you don't act, you don't listen, you don't change, you don't repent, you don't confess. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but here's the key phrase. But from the beginning, his design, his template, his intention, his best, his favor, his blessing, he said, but from the beginning, it was not so. And here's what he said. He kind of talks about, he talks about an example, or I would just say the ultimate fruit of a stubborn, unrepentant heart is you break the covenant by sleeping with somebody who is not your wife, not your husband. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, here's the phrase, this is the exception clause or whatever different theologians talk about, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. You're like, wow, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. 
So let me kind of be precise and make sure that's a both truth and grace. The command from the beginning was God's desire, okay? The concession, again, was something God allowed because of man's fallen condition. So to put it in another way, ultimately, ultimately what brings down a marriage, it's not the fights, it's not the kids, it's not the sex, it's not the money. That's not what kills a marriage. What kills a marriage is a hardened heart. Hardened heart here is expressed by sexual immorality. People are like, well, here's what that means. And here's what, the plain reading of sexual immorality would be unrepentant, adulterous relationship with a person physically outside of marriage. It says that breaks the covenant. 1 Corinthians 7 talks in similar language about desertion when somebody's like, I'm out of here, or has done something that could be called desertion. I know there's a lot of pastoral questions, and what about this, and what about that? Please send the emails, please send the questions, but uh, what you see here is like, I I will say this too also. One note on affairs, what's interesting, what's interesting about affairs, it's the cycle that you typically see is you see stress, 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 stress. Let's do something about it. Sometimes it's let's have a baby. When they have a baby, then they have two hours of sleep a night, and then the stress gets worse and worse and worse and worse, and then finally one goes back to work, and then after all that stress, sees somebody at the office that acts good and looks good and smells good and then says, that is, that's Mr. Right. That's Mrs. Right. Do you know the majority of affairs actually happen when the wife is either pregnant or is delivered? One thing, though, about affairs, one thing about adultery, and I don't say this lightly, that even right now, if you are separated or divorced, if you're separated or divorced, even for that cause, you ought to ask God, God, could you heal, could you heal my marriage? And then give him some time to actually do that. There are marriages that are in this room. There are marriages that are in this room that have that as a hurtful, some of the best marriages in this room. God enabled the hurt spouse to show grace and their marriage is stronger because of it. If it's happened, ask some questions. Has God even healed me? Has God healed me? Has God given me time to heal? If you've gone through a divorce and you're divorced and now you're single, give God some time. Don't jump right back into dating. It's like, I got divorced and I've got a date on Friday. It's a very bad plan. You want to say, God, heal what's broken in me. Heal what's broken in me. And then you might get to the point, God will heal what's broken in my my marriage. So I would say today, resolve, commit to stay together. Say, you know, it's it's, it's, it's a covenant that we made. A couple of things. Some people are like, you know what? I don't want to do it because all we're st- only reason we're staying together is for the kids. And, you know, the kids deserve a happy marriage. And they would be better off if uh, they have uh, two single parents instead of, I know, I'm tre- I know I'm treading on thin ice here. Just hear me out. Because when you get hurt, you, you think like this. They would be better off with two single parents than uh, parents that are really, 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 really challenged right now. And I'm just going to lovingly tell you statistically that is not true. Statistically, that is not the case. Statistically, children of divorce are four times more likely to have social problems, two times more likely to drop out of school, three times more likely to need psychological help, five times more likely to be unable to keep a job. That's just the cold, hard facts. I understand your family's not the cold, hard facts. The goal is not just to hang in there. The goal is actually to thrive. 
The goal is actually to say, you know what? I still say I do. I didn't just say it 10 years ago. I say it right now. Do understand people are watching you. If you're a Christ follower in here, you got to understand people do watch you. And it kind of sends a weird message when you're like, you know what? I'm not happy with my current spouse at all. I'm not happy and she failed me. And so I'm going to go and get something brand new. Okay. I'm going to get some brand new off the showroom floor. That's what I'm going to go do. That sends a weird message to people who know that you have professed Christ. Why? Because you're saying, you know what? I'm unhappy and this person failed me. And so I'm getting something new. It's not hard for them to think, okay, if that's what you do, then it's not hard for them to think, okay, if I ever fail God, he is, he is going to like reject me and push me out and want nothing to do with me. That's not a stretch. I hear it all the time. That's not a stretch at all. I would say then lastly, if you're on your second marriage and you're like, uh, what do I do here? What do I do here? Listen, you can't go back and change the, You can't go back and change some stuff. They're already remarried. You can't go back and change that. You can't go back. Are you going to change that one to change this one? You can't go back and change that. You can't change what happened in the past. What you can do is like C.S. Lewis said, you can't change what happened in the past. You can change what the ending looks like. You can change what you do from here on out. As I said at the earlier part, if you're not dead and you're not, if you're not dead, God's not done with you. What you want to do is commit, okay, if I'm single now, God, help me to be the person that understands these, that finds their joy in you. Doesn't just look for the next person to make me happy. Secondly, it's like when I do that, when that does happen, it's a covenant. It's not a contract. I'm going to pour all in, burn the bridges, nothing I can go and, and run away from. You're like, what do I do? Uh, what do I do with me? Here's, here's what, um, what do we have up here next? Let me, let me, okay, here's, I'll give you two. First of all, there are some resources for you. There's like an abundant, this is super quick. You can get them. You can call the church tomorrow if you don't want to have them run them down. You're like, uh, man, counseling, counseling's for wimps, counseling's for wimps. So I'm, I'm just, that's, that's guys in here. Can I just, I'm one of you. I understand what it's like. He's like, hey, we solve our problems on our own, okay? We don't have to go talk to some, some what's the word I'm looking for that's a uh, shrink. I don't have to talk to a guy, thank you. Okay, um, uh, shrink. I don't talk to some shrink. If it'll help you at all, um, five years ago on our sabbatical, we get a sabbatical every five years. Um, we spent an entire week of that sabbatical doing nothing but trying to get marriage enrichment, marriage enrichment. There were some habits and hangups and patterns that we didn't like. We're like, man, this is not good. This is not good. And we couldn't seem to come to some fruition. So we had an outside person like pouring us for like five straight days. Look, it's, it's not weakness. All right. It is meekness. It is humility. Like somebody's going to tell me what I'm jacked up in and what I'm messed up. That is counseling. But if you need that, we've got some people around town we believe in. So call the church office. Uh, this one again. You're engaged, you're thinking about being engaged, you're super, 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 duper, 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 ultra serious, all right? Before you say I do, uh, backslash I do, okay? Backslash, it starts real soon. Uh, Paul Tripp Conference. Paul Tripp is one of the most requested marriage speakers in the country, and he's coming here in like a month, all right? So February 8th and 9th, less than a month. All right, so sign up for that. You can text marriage to 28282. And some of you are like, man, I just need some help. I'm a broken person. My spouse left, and it's me, and I'm a single parent, and da-da-da-da-da. Don't do this alone. That's what we have a deal called divorce care. It starts actually, it's, this, is, this is providential. That's you. It starts this Tuesday. This Tuesday, it happens to start, all right? Happens. Again, that's not a coincidence. We're like, that's not coincidental. That is providential for God to put some people around you. But here's the, here's the formula I want, you, I want to leave you with. Um, here's what you can do. Because if you hadn't learned this by now, you cannot change anybody. Anybody, anybody know that? Okay. Um, 
Okay, you guys are kind of dying on me, so let me, let me do this. All right, so uh, let me, okay, uh, wives, wives, look at me for a second. Wives or soon-to-be wives or want-to-be wives or might be a wife or you can spell a wife, but just look at me for a second. You, listen, you, you cannot change, you cannot change him. You cannot change him. God can change him and God can use you as an instrument, but you yourself cannot change him. You can try, and how's that working for you? Not good. Men, you cannot change her. You can try. You can get in fights over it. God can change her, and God can use you. You cannot change her. The more you try, the worse it will get. Here's what you can do. You can confess your part of the brokenness of your relationship. Confess it to God. You don't have to go right up to her. You don't have to go right up to him and go, you know, I'm kind of, you, it'd be a great idea if you would, but you confess it to God. God, I've got to own the 24%, 24% of the mess this family is in that's mine. I've been passive. I've been passive aggressive. I've been cynical. I've been whatever. Own it. You confess it. Now, here's the beautiful thing about the gospel is what you confess to God, God will cleanse. Ephesians 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Peter says, he bore your sins on the cross. Paul says, he demonstrates his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he cleanses that. But here's what you got to understand. What you confess, God will cleanse. What God cleanses, then he's got a palate in which he can actually change. He can make change in your family. Change. 